We turn our scripture reading first for our Old Testament reading this morning from Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah chapter 5, as we also look this morning at Luke 13. We read something of what we have just sung together from Psalm 1 of that blessed tree that grows by the Lord's grace. And we read the opposite of that here in Isaiah chapter one of what the uh, chapter five of what the people of Israel have become uh, by their sin. And God says to them, "This he sings to them this song of his vineyard." Uh, it says there in verse one of chapter five, "Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill." He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done in it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge, and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed, and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no more, no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed, for righteousness, but behold, an outcry. It's far from God's word in that place. We notice there that God speaks of his patience, wearing thin with his vineyard. We see that repeated now in Luke 13. In chapter 13, verse 1, where God says to us there, He says, There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. That's far from God's holy word. Shall we ask for his blessing uh, this morning? Heavenly Father, these are sobering words as we enter into this new year with all of our cares and concerns as we remember the year now past us and anticipate this one 
May we refocus our attention that we might prioritize the one thing that matters most, to repent and to believe. We ask, Lord, that you would glorify your name in the preaching of your word, that as the imperishable seed is sown in the preaching of the word, that it would produce an abundant harvest of fruitfulness in our lives. For we ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. The congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, sometimes after Christmas, we forget the cutting force with which Jesus' ministry was announced and commenced with. We hear so often of that Luke 2 story of the babe in swaddling cloths laying in a manger that we forget that just following that account, John the Baptist preparing the way for the the Lord in the desert. And he says that to the Pharisees, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come, you brood of vipers? For even now the axe is already laid to the root of the trees. His ministry is announced as an axe laid to the root to cut down, to throw into the fire anything useless. And many want a Jesus who remains in the manger that is still a babe in swaddling cloth, that they can leave on the shelf and visit on the holidays, one who doesn't require repentance, who has no influence in my life, who won't won't disrupt the way of my, my living, because the demands of his kingdom are severe and urgent and exclusive. But that's the clearest part of his ministry. He came announcing repentance and faith. In fact, just before our passage in Luke 12, uh, he, he tells the crowds that he came to cut, he came to carry a sword, to cast fire upon the earth, to cause division. Do not think I have come to bring peace on earth, but a sword. He's not upholding the status quo, Rather, he's cutting to the root of the human condition. Christmas reveals the ugly truth of that human condition, of God's wrath against the world. And that's what we see in Luke 13. You notice the crowd doesn't think the world is as bad as Jesus thinks it is. They operate under a different set of parameters and assumptions. Only certain trees need to be cut down. Only certain trees have the axe laid to the root. In fact, that's essentially what they're saying in this story. They report to Jesus about these Galileans. They report this tragic story of some Galileans who went to worship, and while they were offering their sacrifices, that Pontius Pilate, the very one who Jesus would stand before, that while they were standing before the pilot offering their sacrifices, maybe there was an insurrection or something broke out or we don't, we're not given all the details, something that perturbed him. Or maybe they were just Samaritans. And Pilate cuts them down in cold blood. So much so that their blood began to mingle with their sacrifices. It was barbarous, it was murderous, horrendous, violent action on the part of Pontius Pilate. And some in the crowd think implicitly that this was God's judgment upon them for their sin, suggesting that these Galileans were somehow worse than other Galileans. That's what we hear implied in Jesus' response. The axe is laid to the root of only some trees. That's the undercurrent of their thinking, a world that swings on the hinges of merit. They merited God's wrath for what they did, and God cut them down. 
And what a vastly different world that Jesus sees. It's easy to think on the basis of merit only if we ignore that, that the axe is laid to the root of all trees that what? Do not produce fruit. What an astonishing answer he gives. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinner than all the other Galileans because they suffered in that particular way? It's a question that gets to the core of the human problem. Do you think you're better off? There were some that assumed that they were. They have a different understanding of the problem. They, they don't understand the universality of sin and of judgment. And strikingly, he says... No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. It's a universal all. This is Jesus' doctrine of total depravity. You will all likewise perish. And he uses that word all five times, four times in five verses. And again, what seemed to be an innocent tragedy, some workers on some scaffolding, perhaps working on this tower, the Tower of Siloam, and it fell, and they perished. And he says, did they perish because they were worse off? No, he says, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Because Jesus sees himself as a gardener who comes to his father's vineyard, even as we read from Isaiah chapter 5 of that barren vineyard. Jesus is the father's Vine dresser, the one who comes to the vineyard and, and the axe of God's wrath is laid sharpened against the roots of all of these barren trees. And so he tells this parable of the fig tree and there's three things we see pictured in this parable. The first is the barren and perishing fig tree. The second, we see this patient grace or this patient gardener. And finally, his productive grace. I first notice this perishing fig tree. Uh, the fig tree is often used in the Bible as a symbol of God's communion, his fellowship, his relationship with his people. It grows in dry, arid climates, but it's patient growth. It doesn't produce fruit until about two years of meticulous gardening. It's a late bloomer, but, but at the end of spring, when it finally begins to bud, it promises a full and rich harvest for the summer and for all of the years beyond. It's no wonder when the prophets spoke of the coming day of the Messiah that everyone would have their own fig tree. It would be abundant. Even Zechariah says that there will be so much, so much richness that, that you will call your neighbors to sit under your own fig tree and dwell with you. It's, it's a symbol of God's divine favor, but it's, it's also a symbol of his judgment because the fig tree is a deceptive tree. It's a Pharisee tree in that it can produce a lot of leaves without bearing any actual fruit. The prophet Hosea says in chapter 9 that God planted a vineyard in the desert. He had a fig tree in which he saw Israel's early fruit. He saw it begin to, to bud in the late spring. He saw the early fruits of Israel's first fathers of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He saw their faith. And it, it, it seemed that it would grow into a, a glorious Richness and abundance, but then summer came and they consecrated themselves to other gods and the nation went astray. The summer came and there was no fruit. 
But from a distance, it had all of the appearance, appearance of a fully matured tree. But upon closer examination, nothing hung from its branches. Well, it's not like the trees outside that we see that are brown and barren and broken and branches dying out in the severe cold and wind. This is a, a leafy tree. And yet it's lifeless. Remember, that's why Jesus curses the fig tree in Mark 11 and chapter 21 of Matthew's gospel. Being hungry, he sees a fig tree in the distance and he goes with his disciples. But upon closer examination, it's no fruit to eat, nothing but leaves. And so he curses it that it would wither and never bear fruit again. And it dies. The fig tree is widely used image of God's covenant people. In fact, already in Genesis, we see our first parents hiding behind its leaves. As they sewed fig leaves together to hide themselves from God's judgment. And that's still the problem that Jesus sees. A people that that have leaves on branches, but no fruit. And they're hiding behind those very same leaves. But now in the parable, the owner of the fig tree, he has, he's come. He's come to his, his fig tree. He wants his fruit from his tree. It's been a generous three years. And he has every right to expect figs from a fig tree that he planted. He planted figs. He should expect figs. But instead, he walks into his backyard. And what does he have? He has a tree that has never produced anything. Maybe in the first few years, it looked like it, it would. And he was patient. But now in this third year, he is 100% sure that it will never produce anything. He says in verse 7, Look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree, and I find none. Cut it down. It's a fair judgment. Cut it down. It didn't work. There's no fruit. It's wasting my soil. Why should it use up my ground, he says. And brothers and sisters, I think oftentimes that's how we feel. Even as we have gone through the past year, it's fair enough to say as we reflect on that year and what's behind us and what we hope for in 2024, we we know the Apostle Peter's admonition that we would grow in grace and a knowledge of the Lord and our Savior or or that we bear the fruit of the Spirit and keeping step with the Spirit. As the Apostle Paul says, and we think to ourselves, well, it's been a slow year for me. I'm a, I'm a slow grower. I'm a late bloomer. No growth, no progress. Slow, if anything. It's, in fact, we feel often that we're heading in the wrong direction, that I'm going backwards. I'm regressing instead of pre-progressing. And we desire to be better. We wish we were more fruitful. But then we, we look back and we wonder if anything happened at all, if we changed at all. Or if there's any fruit to prove that we have changed, that, that we bear fruit. And maybe that's how you felt about the last year, just taking up space, using up soil for nothing. And so comes the gardener and we tremble at his words, cut it down, because perhaps that means me. Perhaps I'm the one who's going to be cut down. 
And then there is the cut it down crowd. There are those who seek radical solutions that if they don't see growth within the first year, even in the first month, they, they cut it down. Like when Jesus entered into Samaria and, and Luke 9.51, it says he sets his face towards Jerusalem and he enters into Samaria and all of the homes and villages. And what do the people do? They reject him to his face because his face is set towards Samaria. And what does disciples James and John say? Lord, should we not cast down fire from heaven and consume them. Cut it down. They rejected you. They didn't repent. And how often we feel we want certain people to be cut down and we justify ourselves saying, well, I was patient with them. I was kind. They, they abused my generosity. Lord, cut them down. I've had, it. I've had enough of them. No growth. No repentance. I'm done with them. Or he still lives the same way he did in high school. Or she's still the same sinner she was before when I knew her before. They never change. Lord, cut him down. Cut her down. And it's this attitude that Jesus suppresses with his question. Do you think you are worse sinners? That they are worse sinners. It's not about other people. Jesus personalizes it for each of us. No, unless you repent you will all likewise perish. Now, why does he personalize this question to each of us? Because this is the garden, he, the garden he comes to after the fall of our first parents, Adam and Eve. In direct disobedience, they let this garden wither and die and become barren. And the whole world is nothing but perishing trees. So that the Apostle John would say about that world that God so loved that world, that garden, that he sent his only begotten son, that whosoever should believe in him should not perish. Jesus came not because some trees needed to be cut down to beautify his father's landscaping. He came because every tree has an axe laid to its root, because every tree is wasting the gardener's soil. It might have leaves, but it doesn't have fruit. But unless you repent, you will all likewise And God did so love that world that he gave his son as this gracious gardener. That's the second thing we see this morning. The beautiful description of what we read of Jesus in this parable. It's perhaps among some of the most assuring words that Jesus ever speaks. He, He says to the frustrated owner, Sir, let it alone. Let it alone this year also. Give it another year. Be patient with it. I will work on this tree. Don't, don't you hear the comfort of that? It's, it's the center of the parable. His divine patience with fruitless trees. Why are you and me entering in this new year of 2024? Why are 8 billion plus people entering into this new year? It's only because of the gardener's patience. The crowds of Jesus' day saw a world that operated on the principle of merit, but Jesus teaches us that the world hinges on divine patience, divine grace towards sinners. He supplies the time. He supplies the space, the room that's needed to repent. But it's not unlimited patience. He says, let it alone, come back later, tolerate it for what it is, bear with it, be long-suffering with it. If it bears fruit next year, well and good, but... If not, then you can cut it down. The Apostle Peter 
says in his epistle, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. And if there is anyone who should have been cut down by God's wrath, it was backstabbing Peter who denied his Lord on his way to his cross. But Jesus showed him patience that he himself would reach repentance. The same was true for murderous Paul. He tells a young Timothy, I was a blasphemer, I was a persecutor, and an insolent opponent, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ overflowed for me, and the saying is trustworthy and worthy of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I receive mercy that through me as the foremost, Jesus might display his perfect patience as an example to all those who are to believe. He is perfect in patience. He's the perfect gardener in that way. He's willing to watch grass grow. He's willing to watch paint dry. He understands weakness. He understands your infirmities. He understands where you struggle, but he's patient with it. Let it alone, he says. There's no quick fixes. Patience, patience, patience. We often desire to grow in our fruitfulness. We, we want to see such abundance. <laughs> but the, the reality of Jesus teaching us here is it's a patient growth. And often we feel that our, our heart doesn't match the actions of our hands and our lives. And we, we get frustrated with how slow it is to, for, to learn certain lessons that, that, that the Lord teaches us. We feel painful reminders of our own weaknesses and failures. And feeling this way, we often feel for judgment. But look at the Savior of this passage, a patient gardener, one who seeks to help rather than to harm. And often this time of year, we stick to our resolutions. We resolve to be better, to try harder, to work more at it. Perhaps that we, we just need to do more, more effort. Or we stop making resolutions altogether because nothing ever changes. But God is the one who is patient. Even if we look back over this past year, out of all of the things that we have done, we couldn't keep a log or a spreadsheet of everything that God has been patient with us. Graciously patient. But that's how his grace operates. It's overwhelmingly patient. He says, let it alone, leave it be, come back after another year. His response to the crowd swims against everything they think to be true about this world. They are a world, and so are we, of radical solutions, impatience, cutting things down when they don't work, people who are zealous for new things, new solutions. People are zealous for quick problem-solving, like Pilate, his kingdom was to come and chop people down, or Herod to chop people down, or in our day and age and this government or any government or any place or any person to chop this down if it doesn't work. And many in Jesus' day sought to chop him down. And soon they'd respond the very same way with him. In fact, everywhere he went, he was immediately rejected. But the one who knows how to carry the sword is more patient to use the sword. And so we find in Jesus the only one who could look full in the face of human depravity while remaining sinless. 
yet still patient. Because he knows what the judgment is. He experienced the cutting down of God's wrath. And yet, even while he is being cut down, he pleads for patience, for patient grace. It's the same word that is being used here in this parable. When divine dresser pleads, Sir, let it alone this year also. It's the very same word that Jesus utters to his Father upon the cross. Father, forgive them. Let them alone. Be patient. Spare them for this another year. For they know not what they do. As the the axe of God's wrath cuts him down, he prays that God would be patient with us. Give them another year, wishing that none would perish, but all would reach repentance, bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. And what is this repentance that Jesus speaks of and preaches? We might imagine in our heads a, a, a cold and commanding voice saying, crawling, come crawl over here and bow before me, repent or perish. But what does it mean to repent? It means to believe. Believing and repenting are married together. When we come to Christ, we believe penitently. And when we repent, we repent believingly. That what he has accomplished on his cross was for me. It's a personal thing. Heartfelt forgiveness of sins. It's a heartfelt sorrow for sin and a turning towards him in faith, a trusting faith that all that was needed for my unfruitfulness, my barrenness, was accomplished on that cross of the one who bore fruit. So that we would say this man is going to Jerusalem to face the wrath of God in my place. You see how he answers the question that was raised about the Galileans that piled and mingled their their blood with their sacrifices. Jesus is foreshadowing their need for his blood to be mingled with his own sacrifice. And he deepens the issue to say, if you don't repent, you will likewise perish. He's telling us that we don't have the time that we think we have. We don't... We don't have another year in terms of all that we, we, we assume things or presume his patience. He, he's telling them that we don't have this time. The axe is already laid to the root of the tree, yet he's patient, but it's not unlimited patience. We don't enter a new year not so that we can presume upon his patience, but to repent. And as we head into this new year, this is the only issue that matters. Why has the gardener given us more time on this earth, not to squander it, not to expect it, but to use it for that purpose, to repent and bear fruit in keeping with repentance? For he says, if it should bear fruit next year, well then good, but if not, then you can cut it down, because that tree is just wasting soil. But lest we fear that we haven't produced enough fruit, we we examine this final point, because it's, it's not only the gardener's patience that's on display, but his own productivity, his productive grace. He tends the garden for that extended year. He gives the owner his word, give me another year of patience with this tree and I will use every method of agriculture to produce fruit. We might fear that 
that we aren't doing enough or trying hard enough or believing enough or believing in Jesus and resting enough or holding on to him enough. But this isn't our garden. He's the one who works. He says, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. This patient grace is productive. He, he digs around the tree, down even to the roots, turns over the soil. He adds nutrients and fertilizer. The roots aren't getting the nutrients they need, and so he digs. And then he lays over it a, a layer of manure to fertilize the soil. It's a dirty, messy grace, productive grace. And just like the farmers, as some of you know yourselves, you spray the fields you get out the muck trucks and you can always tell that it's spring right around the corner because it smells like manure in the air. That's the grace of God. He gives like that. It doesn't come smelling like roses, but like manure. It sometimes makes you feel like the roots are being ripped from the earth because they are being ripped from the earth. Like the shovel is piercing through the hardened soil, overturning it and making it workable and pliable. It's painful, productive grace. Because he would rather have that for you than to perish. But he doesn't leave us tending to ourselves to produce the fruit. He himself works. He's using his tools as ordinary as they are, as slow as they often go, even as counterproductive as they seem. That's the method he chooses. He humbles us. He makes us dependent upon him. And that's also what repentance is. Our catechism, the Heidelberg Catechism, says it's the continual dying away of the old self and the coming to life of the new self. It's cross-bearing. It's crucifixion. Paul says it's as if I was crucified to the world and the world was crucified to me. Because every believer is in the process of slowly, sometimes painfully, being untethered from the earth are the roots that cling to this world. And that's an, a, a, a task that is impossible but for God's grace. Uh, Luke would later give us two examples of that. First, he tells us that story of the rich young ruler. He has everything in his life. He's done everything that was required of him. He's rich in this world. But Jesus tells him he has no treasure in heaven. You need to be untethered from this world, but... But what does he do? He goes away sad, for he was exceedingly wealthy. And Jesus says, it is easier for the camel to pass through the eye of the needle for them, than for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. But then he says, what is impossible for man is possible for God. Just like that other son, the, 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 the younger brother, the prodigal son who squandered his father's inheritance, lived for himself, didn't have a penny left. But once the inheritance dried up, he realized that he was living in the manure of the pig pods, humiliated and stripped of everything. Only then does he see his need to repent. Well, that's the grace of the gardener in this parable. He uses means and tools that often cause us to, to question, to, to wonder why, Lord, or even cause us to despair. We, we tremble at the gardener's shovel, his manure. We don't want to smell it. We don't want to feel the pierce of his shovel upon the ground. We don't want him to use the tools that he does. We like to think we don't need those tools. But if we see the patient grace in the gardener's face, we could trust him to use it exactly as he intends to bring forth fruit. 
He knows the seasons of your soul. He knows where to apply pressure, where to ease off. Just as he did to Jonah going to Nineveh to call a a whole country, their city of Nineveh, to repentance. Repent or perish. All the while needing to repent himself. And he drew him to despair. He cast him upon the waters, swallowed him up in the belly of a whale. Until he confessed that salvation is from the Lord alone. And that his grace is greater than life itself. Do you see what it takes to grow it? It's patient grace. It's productive grace. And maybe we're afraid to grow. We don't want change because we know it would be painful. But Jesus says, repent or perish. And those are his words. Either we grow in his grace, which he himself does within us. And we can rejoice in that. We can take hope in that. Comfort, assurance in that. That it isn't just trials and tribulations or random events that somehow overturned my life or turned me upside down. This is the gardener turning over soil in your life. Attaching you to the vine, the true vine of John 15. That you would bear fruit. I was reflecting on that. I was reminded of the life of the saints, of how often that happens in their lives. Their lives are overturned or they're shown their inward thoughts and their hearts are exposed to themselves and they feel their shame. And such a man like that was John Newton, who was the famous slave trader who wrote Amazing Grace. He also later in life wrote a a poem of God's grace entitled, it's really more of a prayer, he entitles it, I ask the Lord that I might grow. And he writes there, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know, and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he I trust has answered prayer, but it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hope that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. Yes, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all my fair designs I schemed and blasted my gourds and laid me low. Lord, why is this, I trembling cried, Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou might find thine all in me. And as we enter into this new year together as a congregation, God's patient grace grace goes before us, goes with us, working upon us in our hearts, turning the soil, manuring the field. But never lose sight of the one who on the cross is patient with sinners, who gives the grace. For he bore the judgment of God that was laid to the root of each of us, that we would bear fruit in keeping with repentance for his glory, believing in him, trusting in him. And so as we go into this new year together, may we go in the Lord's grace. Amen.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for such grace that you've displayed upon the cross of Jesus Christ, the one who bears the sword, was willing to be cut down by your wrath. And Lord, what a wonderful thing that is that we could experience the great exchange, his righteousness for our unholiness and our sinfulness, that upon the cross he became sin for us. And so may, Father, by your Spirit working in us, may we display the fruit of the Spirit. Yes, Lord, we confess that even in this life, we have but the the small beginnings, baby steps, but truly and in the heart we desire to keep all of your commandments, to, to love you as you have loved us, because you have loved us first. And so, Father, may you encourage each of us, often when we see our lack of fruit, may you encourage us by reminding us of the patience of the gardener. And, Father, may we also be encouraged to know that we can bear good, good fruit because he has given us his spirit. And so, Father, be with us in this new year ahead, for we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen.